Welcome to the Flight Bridge Ed podcast series. Hey everybody, Eric back with you. Today we're going to continue our nightmare series um, on our case studies, and we're going to talk about advanced hemodynamics. Um, we're going to look at a, a case uh, of a, a 58-year-old male patient that was um, very, very sick, uh, presented initially with shortness of breath, weakness, uh, malaise. It, this progressed into a pretty, pretty significant um, uh, illness. So we're going to tie this into advanced hemodynamics. I'm going to break off and, and kind of talk about the different parts of a swan, a pulmonary artery catheter. Uh, I know a lot of times nowadays flying, if you're taking care of these critical patients during transport, it's very seldom that you're going to see a swan uh, or a pulmonary artery catheter of any kind placed anymore. Um, I think, you know, in the last five years, I've only had a few. So for test purposes, if you're taking these advanced certification exams that um, I know uh, many of you are studying for right now. I get a lot of emails every week from people that are currently preparing for uh, these exams, whether it be the FPC uh, or the CFRN. So we can apply these concepts uh, and use these concepts for your test-taking purposes. And So maybe by applying this to a case study like this, it's going to become more um, uh, relevant uh, in your mind, because I know a lot of this stuff, if you've never done this, can be a little bit confusing. We're also going to tie this into some ventilator management. We're going to tie this into um, different presentations and, and differential diagnosis as it relates to pneumonia, as it relates to ARDS, and it relates to uh, congestive heart failure uh, with pulmonary edema. And I'll kind of talk to you about some ways you can use your advanced hemodynamics to diagnose this patient. So we'll start with the, the presentation, and then I'm going to jump right into advanced hemodynamics, uh, and then we'll continue, and I'll kind of tie in the patient scenario as we go on with the different application of our our SWAN uh, and, and our parameters. So like I said, you have a 58-year-old male patient. This male patient had been at home and had started having an upper respiratory infection, was being treated with a, a ZPAC, and this progressed into... Uh, shortness of breath, uh, productive cough, decreased LOC uh, per the family. So this patient was taken to a small facility. Uh, chest x-ray was taken. And on the chest x-ray, um, they noted a bilateral style, what looked to be possible pneumonia, so bilateral infiltrates. And, um, you know, you actually had complete whiteout of a lot of the areas on both lung fields. But it also looked very similar to a ground glass appearance. So if you took a, imagine taking a cotton ball and dabbing all the areas of the lung fields, that's what it kind of looks like. And so we know that a ground glass appearance is indicative or diagnostic for ARDS. So we have a patient that's presenting in a, in a situation where we don't know if this is a pneumonia problem, we don't know if this is ARDS, or is this an actual pulmonary edema problem? Is this a congestive heart failure problem? So how are we going to uh, take care of this patient? If you were called to transport this patient and this was a small facility like this, oftentimes this is going to overwhelm that facility. So obviously um, they did a set of blood gases, and the blood gases were as follows. Um, he was a little bit alkalotic. His uh, pH was 7.49. Um, his CO2 was uh, about 25, so he was a little bit tachypnic. Uh, his bicarb was normal. 
and his PO2 was very low. It was 57. All right, so that's telling you right there that there's a hypoxic problem. Um, he's alkalotic. We know that any time a, um, a patient goes into that primary early stage of shock, that compensatory stage of shock, oftentimes they're going to be alkalotic because they're tachypnic. They're trying to compensate, and that's going to lead um, to blowing off that CO2, which is going to raise that that uh, pH into the uh, alkalotic state. So that's something that shouldn't really alarm you. That should be something that you should expect. Um, after you um, you arrive on scene, you get this history, you get this presentation, um, you identify um, that the patient does have a history of right-sided heart failure, is on um, a, a diuretic uh, Lasix, and um, has a history of MI and some stent placements uh, a few years back. So the potential is there for some type of heart failure problem. We need to be very thorough in our diagnosis in this situation. Again, is this congestive heart failure? Is this pneumonia? Is this ARDS? Right? If, we, if this is ARDS, we know that this patient could decompensate and become very, very sick very, very quickly. We also know that ARDS is a secondary issue that happens from an inflammatory response from some type of foreign invader. And, and it can be anything that triggers this response. So let's quickly talk about... Um, how we would we would identify each one of these chest x-rays. His chest x-ray looked very, very horrible. Um, like I said, when we look at a chest x-ray, you want to be able to see those long margins. You want to be able to see that diaphragm. You want to see normal expansion of that chest. And you want to see good interstitial markings um, of those airways uh, throughout. You also want to look at your heart and you want to make sure that that heart isn't greater than half of the size of that whole chest cavity. If it is, that's telling you that there's some type of cardiomyopathy. So this patient had, like I said, a very progressive, wide-out, ground-glass appearance throughout both right and lung, uh, left lung fields. Most often when you see a pneumonia, if it hasn't progressed um, even if it's if it's pretty severe, pneumonias oftentimes aren't going to be bilateral. We know that a right-sided pneumonia is going to be most prominent. But oftentimes a pneumonia is going to just look like a small section that kind of looks like a pie shape has been taken out of that area. And you can, you can identify where that pneumonia is very, very easy. So his chest x-ray to me looked very, very ominous, very poor. At this time, the patient was uh, intubated. Uh, because of the, the, the continued hypoxia, uh, despite some NEBS, despite high flow O2, um, secondary blood gases uh, revealed that a PO2 was actually dropping. I think it dropped into the low 50s. And so this patient was put, uh, intubated, RSI, and placed on the ventilator. Uh, pulmonary artery catheter was placed prior to our arrival. This is kind of where we, we take over the care. So at this point, we're going to jump into the advanced hemodynamics part because I know that there's been a lot of questions. I field a lot of emails regarding, you know, can we apply this to a case study? So most often when we, when we see this, we're going to relate this to what is called a Swan-Gantz catheter. And a Swan-Gantz catheter is a, a, a multi-lumen catheter that's placed most often in the subclavian, and it, it, it's fed in um, into the right atrium. 
it's fed down through that right atrium, through that tricuspid valve. Uh, it's floated into the right ventricle. It's never leapt into the right ventricle. We'll talk about that a little bit further here in a few minutes. It's passed through that right ventricle up into the pulmonary um, artery through the pulmonic valve, and that's where it's actually secured. There's multiple things that this uh, Swan-Gantz, or I should say a pulmonary artery catheter, is going to tell you. And there's multiple ports on this catheter that we need to be able to identify, and it's very important to identify. So once it's secured and once it's actually sitting in that pulmonary artery, we're going to actually watch and we're going to be able to see a, a waveform. And the waveform that you're going to be identifying is called a pulmonary artery waveform. And that's where you actually have a dichrotic notch. That dichrotic notch is telling you that every time you see that, that pulmonic valve is actually closing. It's very important to understand the difference of, of that dichrotic notch and what that means. It, it can mean two different things. For the purpose of this presentation, what we're talking about is a pulmonary artery catheter that's actually placed in the subclavian artery, and every time that pulmonic valve closes, that's indicative of that dichrotic notch on the pulmonary artery, and that's important to know. If you ever see in a test, and the test is telling you that you're actually looking at a balloon pump, and that balloon pump tip is actually the art line, Whenever you see that dichrotic notch on the pulmonary artery waveform, that's indicative of, of the aorta closing or the aortic valve closing. Two different things. So imagine that balloon pump, uh, balloon catheter pointing upward through that aortic root, and it's actually looking at that aortic valve. And every time that aortic valve closes, that's at the end of that systolic phase, and that's indicative of, of that dichrotic notch. For the purposes of this presentation, though, we're talking about, again, the subclavian, and it's placed in the subclavian, and it's looking at the pulmonic valve. Okay, I just wanted to make sure you understand that you need to read the question if you're in a test purpose. I think it's important to understand that, that there's two different ways to look at that, and, and when you are taking a test, read the question very thoroughly to identify what it's asking you. Okay, so let's really quickly go through the different ports that you would have on a pulmonary artery catheter. All right. The first port and the most important port that we need to talk about is, is the distal port. And the distal port is used for two things and two things only. The distal port is the port that actually goes, um, it says distal at the very uh, top. Uh, it'll be labeled distal. And that distal port is the very tip of that, of that pulmonary artery catheter. That tip is actually sitting in the pulmonary artery. And it's looking at the pulmonic valve closing, okay? That tip also has a little balloon on the end of it. And that's how we inflate to advance that into the wedge position. So here's the two, two things that we use this for. Number one, to advance it into the wedge position, and number two, to transduce a pulmonary artery waveform. That's it. We never want to push medications through this distal port. We don't want to push fluids through the distal port. Just to transduce that waveform, so our pressure bag system with our pressure line and our bag that's filled with 300 millimeters of mercury of air, that's hooked to that, that top port, that white port on the top of the Swan uh, Gans catheter. Again, only used to transduce the, the pulmonary artery waveform. That's what's actually giving you that pulmonary artery waveform that's showing you that dichrotic notch and to actually wedge into the pulmonary uh, 
vasculature to get a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So that's the only two reasons why we're going to use that. Another port that's used is called a thermistor port, and this is going to be a blue computerized foam cord, I should say, looking port. Not all Swan-Ganth catheters is going to have this option, but basically what this is is when you're in the ICU and you have the capability of having a thermistor monitor, it's actually going to spit out cardiac outputs constantly, so it's going to tell you what the patient's cardiac output is. Not all Swan-Ganth catheters have that. The next port is called the proximal uh, injecte, or there's also a, an, a, a proximal infusion port, and they're the same exact thing, so we can use them interchangeably. What those two ports are doing is they're actually sitting, there's little holes in that pulmonary artery catheter, and as you advance that through and the tip is sitting in the pulmonary artery, further up the catheter, there's little holes, and those little holes are actually sitting in the, in the right atrium, okay? So that's in the central circulation. Right, We have deoxygenated blood there. That's the central circulation. So that's where we can draw um, SVO2s, central venous oxygen saturations, um, and that's where we can actually push medications. We can push fluid. We can um, uh, do drips. So we can, you know, if we, if we have a neosinephrine drip or a levofed drip, we can actually use that proximal injecte or the proximal uh, infusion port. Another way we can use those ports to our advantage is, is, like I said, that distal port is used to transduce a pulmonary artery waveform, and that's giving you a pulmonary artery pressure, systolic and diastolic, and it's also giving you that wedge pressure if you advance it. But the most important pressure that we can look at consistently that tells us how our patient's doing is called a CVP pressure, so that's your central venous pressure or it may uh, be written in exams as your right atrial pressure. But most often, a CVP pressure is how you're going to see it written. Your CVP pressure is basically the pressure in that right atrium. And so you have two different ports. Like I said, you have an injecte and a, an infusion port that actually feed into that right atrium. So what you can do is you can have one of those ports used for medications, fluid administration, and you can have that second port, and you can actually transduce with a second pressure setup and have a consistent CVP um, pressure so you understand what's going on in the central circulation. And I'll explain why that's so important here in a second. So those are your ports on your actual pulmonary artery catheter. The last port is an is actual port that you actually use the syringe that comes with the catheter. It's a syringe that will only allow you to inflate the balloon at the distal tip up to one and a half mils. Um, you, will, you never use any other syringe but the one that comes with that catheter. So when you come to your patient and do your assessment, you need to make sure that you have that exact syringe that came with the catheter. So that's a, a an actual port that actually goes all the way down to that distal area, inflates that balloon, um, and it's used for that syringe. Okay, so let's talk about uh, real briefly the different pressures. So I said that the most important pressure that we can look at is your central venous pressure. So why is that? Well, if I had any pressure at all, if I, if I had a Swan-Ganth uh, catheter and I was wanting to look at any pressure um, at all times, it would be my CVP pressure. And here's why. It's going to tell you if your patient is fluid uh, um, depleted or it's going to tell you if your patient is fluid overloaded. And if you can think about everything comes into that right atrium and then everything downstream from that 
is going to reflect everything back to that CVP. So how do, how do I explain that a little bit better? What I'm saying is if you have a dam, if you have something like – let's say we talk about a beaver dam, and a beaver dam um, builds a dam in between the pulmonary artery and that uh, left atrium. Well, that's going to cause a back pressure back into the right ventricle and into the right atrium. So you're going to see that reflection in that CVP pressure. So that CVP is the starting pressure that we can look at, and it really is important in guiding our care in a lot of different areas. Your normal CVP range um, in most books that you can read is 2 to 6 millimeters of mercury. Okay, So 2 to 6 millimeters of mercury is your standard CVP. So if you checked your CVP pressure and it was zero, then either your patient is fluid depleted, so they need volume, um, that's where you would start. Um, do they have a right ventricular infarction? Do they have maybe uh, – are they preload dependent or are they, they're just um, hypovolemic shock? Um, so you can really use that CVP to guide your fluid resuscitation. When we talk about sepsis, sepsis care is all about proper fluid administration. We don't want to overload our patients, but we don't want to under-fluid resuscitate. So a CVP is used to guide that fluid resuscitation. So when we look at a CVP pressure of between 8 and 12, that's your goal in fluid resuscitation on a sepsis patient. You're trying to achieve a pressure between 8 and 12, um, and that's telling you once you reach that that your patient has, has had enough volume uh, given to them because we know that too much volume is going to lead to other problems. It starts inflammatory problems. It starts the DIC process. We don't need all, those, all that fluid. So a CVP is very, very important. <clears throat> if we take it a step further, if we look at a CVP and we say um, your CVP is high, well, that CVP is high for a few reasons. It could be that they've got too much volume on board. We just said we use that to guide fluid resuscitation. Or is there a problem with the right side of the heart? Have they had a massive MI and it's causing excessive pressures in that area? Or... Like I said, is there a problem downstream? When I'm talking about downstream, I'm talking about the left atrium or the left ventricle. And we're, we're essentially talking about heart failure. So if there's excessive pressures back up uh, from a mitral valve uh, regurge, mitral valve insufficiency, something like that, or aortic, aortic valve disease process, you're going to have a back pressure, and it's going to be reflective in that CVP. So a high CVP most of the time is going to lead you to believe that you have a problem in the left side of the heart. The next pressure that we can talk about is your right ventricular pressure. And this is something that, that I want you to kind of look at um, as we're just passing through. We never want to be looking at this pressure for very long, and it's really not going to tell you a whole bunch more than what your CVP is telling you. But increased pressures are going to be indicative of right ventricular failures um, or chronic CHF on that left side. So again, if you have a left side of problem, it's going to cause a backup and that pressure is going to be increased in that right ventricle. Like I said, when we advance that catheter, if you were actually the person that was advancing that catheter, you would never want to leave it in that right ventricle because that, that catheter is going to whip around in there and it's going to cause irritability and it leads to VTAC. 
All right. So when we look at this, when we look at the the waveform change, we start with a CVP waveform, and it says very low amplitude waveform. When we advance it through the tricuspid valve, we go into that right ventricle, and that right ventricle, you're going to change into a very large waveform with um, oftentimes a notch on the on the actual left side of that waveform. That's called an anacrotic notch. An anacrotic notch is indicative of atrial kick. When we talk about how blood enters the right side of the heart, remember we have the superior vena cava, the blood enters that right uh, atrium. That right, right atrium will just start filling with blood, and that tricuspid valve stays open the entire time. So 80% of that preload that is actually draining into that right ventricle just happens based on gravity. The other 20% is caused from atrial kick when that when that tricuspid valve slams shut when that volume in that right ventricle gets so much, it slams shut, that's atrial kick. And that's very important. That accounts for 20% of preload. That anacrotic notch that you see on a right ventricular waveform is on the left side of that waveform. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing an anacrotic notch that's indicative of atrial kick. So your systolic pressure on your right ventricular um, uh, pressure-wise is going to be 20 to 30, and your diastolic's anywhere from uh, 0 to 5, 0 to 6. Again, this is something that you just should know for test purposes. Um, most often, you know, you're not going to really concentrate on this pressure. The next pressure we talk about is basically the pulmonary artery pressure. All right? The pulmonary artery pressure, again, is where that distal tip of that swan, where that pulmonary artery catheter is sitting. And so a normal pressure is going to be 15 to 25 on the systolic side, and on the diastolic side, 8 to 15. All right. This is this is a very important pressure. Again, that that distal tip is actually sitting in the pulmonary artery. We're constantly looking at this. This is where that distal tip is getting transduced. This is where you're seeing that pulmonary artery waveform, where you're having the dichrotic notch on the right side of the waveform. Remember, that's indicative of pulmonic valve closure. So it does two things. The first thing it does is it directly tells you left atrial pressure. Okay. The second thing it does is it indirectly reflects left ventricular and diastolic pressure. So what does a pulmonary artery pressure tell you? Again, if it's low, you should already know that. If it's low, that means your CVP is going to be low because remember your CVP is your starting pressure. If it's low, you know your patient probably is hypovolemic or has a fluid volume problem. If, if you have no preload coming in, you're going to have very poor afterload. Right, so a decreased pulmonary artery pressure most often is going to be hypovolemia. If it's increased, that's where we're going to see the left side of problems. So again, are they fluid overloaded? Right, so you need to always identify that. Are they fluid overloaded? Your CVP is also going to be high in that situation. Look at the, the history of the patient. Look at the presentation and identify if they're overloaded. Um, do they have any pulmonary hypertension? Um, do they have mitral valve regurg? Do they have any aortic valve problems, things like that? Or do they have congestive heart failure? So those are the things that will raise that pulmonary artery pressure up. All right, the next pressure is your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, right? And we said your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure um, is basically synonymous with that pulmonary artery pressure. It, again, looks indirectly at left atrial pressure. Remember I said that the pulmonary artery pressure is a direct indication of left atrial pressure. 
your your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is indirectly related to that left atrial pressure, um, and it looks basically at that preload of the of the left side. So your preload to your right side is your CVP. Your preload to your left side is actually your wedge pressure. Okay, so your wedge pressure normally should be eight to twelve millimeters of mercury. That's pretty normal. Remember, we get that wedge pressure by using the syringe that came with the catheter, by filling that distal tip, that balloon, to no more than 1.5 mils. You're advancing that catheter at the same time. Once it goes into the wedge position, once you see that pulmonary artery waveform change to that wedge, low amplitude waveform, then you're going to stop. If it only took one mil of air to do that, then that's um, where you're going to stop. You're going to wedge it, you're going to get the number, and then you're going to deflate the balloon before you pull it back. Watch that waveform change from the wedge waveform back into the pulmonary artery waveform, and then secure the catheter. So again, your normal is 8 to 12 millimeters of mercury, um, and that's going to be your, your, your identifying um, number. So again, if you have a decreased wedge pressure, again, always think about hypovolemia. That's going to match your low CVP. Or does your patient have any medications being administered at that point that could cause any vasodilation, right? So are they on a medication like nitro, nipride, cardine, anything like that? An increased pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, the problem with that left ventricle, do we have a problem with the mitral valve, um, you know, do we have a left-sided problem? Okay, so continuing. So when we look at this, when we identify these things, how can we apply this to our patient presentation? Like I said, this patient is 58 years old. He came in with um, severe respiratory distress. Chest x-ray looked very, very horrible. Um, initially diagnosed um, by the physician as a bilateral pneumonia. Um, the flight crew gets there, they look at this, and they identify this could possibly be ARDS. They start broad-spectrum antibiotics, and that's the big, big thing in this situation. Whether this is pneumonia, whether this is CHF, whether this is ARDS, the big thing for this patient is early, early, very aggressive antibiotic therapy. So Leviquin, um, gentamicin, vancomycin, you know, hit it, all three broad-spectrum, gram-negative, gram-positive. Very important to be aggressive with your antibiotic therapy. As we said before, this patient has a history of congestive heart failure. And so how do we know what's some diagnostic ways to identify if this is a pneumonia problem? And if this is a pneumonia problem, has it progressed to ARDS? Was this a situation where he started out having a bilateral pneumonia and it just the patient's having an inflammatory response now and we have a progressive ARDS situation? We can use some diagnostic tools because we have that pulmonary artery catheter in place to uh, do just that. And here's the thing. When we look at ARDS, ARDS is something that we've talked about in the past podcast is a very, very um, important concept to understand. It's a, it's, it kills millions of patients, and um, we have to be very aggressive with our treatments. We have to change how we treat our patient w with regards to the ventilator, with sedation, with pain management, um, and with our uh, uh, antibiotic um, therapy. Right? 
this is ARDS secondary to an infectious process. Well, we don't want to wait to identify if this is a viral pneumonia versus a bacterial pneumonia. We need to just treat it as a bacterial pneumonia until proven otherwise. But because we have that pulmonary artery catheter in place, we can identify very, very quickly based on a few things. All right. Number one, acute onset. How quickly did this patient decompensate like this? Well, I said that he had an upper respiratory infection, progressed over a few days, even even though he had a ZPAC, um, and he progressed into the ER with severe respiratory distress, uh, malaise, decreased LOC. The second thing is he had a bilateral um, presentation on his chest x-ray. Oftentimes, like I said, a pneumonia is going to progress unless it's very, very severe on one side, most often the right side. Um, so uh, this patient had that bilateral infiltrates on the chest x-ray and again, ground glass appearance throughout. So if you took a cotton swab and you were to, to swab that chest x-ray, just imagine doing that, um, that's what it's kind of going to look like. And this is where we can use the advanced hemodynamics. This is where if you want to advance that pulmonary artery uh, catheter into the wedge position, you can use a pulmonary artery wedge pressure to diagnose if this patient is in pulmonary edema secondary to congestive heart failure or if this is uh, ARDS. And the parameter to look for, we set a normal wedge pressure is 8 to, uh, to 12. That's normal. So if this patient is already having some pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary hypertension oftentimes is secondary to pulmonary hypoxia, he's already hypoxic, um, your wedge pressure may be high as it is. If it's greater than 18, so let's say we advance this catheter and we get a number that's 20 millimeters of mercury. What that's telling you that that's diagnostic for um, that this patient is actually suffering from congestive heart failure with pulmonary edema, and that is what you're seeing on the chest x-ray. But in this situation, this patient's wedge pressure was 16, and that's diagnostic for ARDS. So if you have a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure that's less than 18 millimeters of mercury, and you have an absence or a clinical uh, absence of any left atrial hypertension, right? So is your pulmonary artery pressures um, matching that wedge pressure. We said that that's an indirect um, uh, look at that left atrial pressure um, being the wedge. So you have a low wedge pressure, less than 18, and then we can start looking at what's called the, the uh, PAO2, FIO2 uh, ratio. And what you're going to do is you're basically going to take what their actual uh, PAO2 is and you're going to divide that by, by their FIO2. If it comes out less than 200, it's ARDS. And so what that's telling you is the patient has an associated hypoxemia along with this presentation. This patient presented just like this, had a wedge pressure of 16, had a very low PAO2, FIO2 ratio. I believe it was about 125. Um, we, we said the blood gas presentation was he was alkalotic. His CO2 was 25, and his um, uh, PO2 dropped into the low 50s, about 52 to 53. So during transport, we have to do a few things. You know, there's no real need to continue to wedge this catheter. We said we can actually use the pulmonary artery uh, pressure that's current. You're going to have that constantly given to you. Um, you can take that and you can um, you can take that and subtract two to four millimeters of mercury from that, and that's going to actually give you what the current wedge pressure is. We use that again as a diagnostic tool to um, identify if this is ARDS versus 
um, congestive heart failure, and we've done so. All right, so now we've got the patient on the ventilator. Remember, I'm not going to go into a big ventilator ramp, but remember the big thing with ARDS is you want very low tidal volume. So this is where you're going to go 4 mils per kilogram on your tidal volume. You're going to go a higher respiratory rate, um, you know, up in the uh, 20s, probably 18 to 20 range. That's going to protect that lung, so that's called a protective lung strategy. Very low tidal volumes, higher rate to maintain that ventilation. We have very early onset of administration of antibiotics. We've done that. We said levoquin, vancomycin, gentamicin. Um, and then we're going to monitor the blood pressure. We're going to look. We've got a CVP. We can constantly titrate his fluid volume status. We don't want to overload him, but we can use that CVP. Remember, a normal CVP is 2 to 6. If we look at this as a potential sepsis, right, he's leading to that very, very uh, close, um, you know, in relation. Um, he could easily progress into a septic shock. Um, we can look at this and we can make sure we give enough volume but not too much volume. So we can use that CVP to gauge his fluid uh, resuscitation. And then just maintain good sedation and pain management. Remember, pain management, fentanyl. Every five minutes, a good a good aliquots of, of probably 100 mics every five minutes. Um, Versed every every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, two and a half milligrams at a time is going to keep your patient very comfortable. The more comfortable we we keep these patients, um, the, the less oxygen demand um, they're going to use up, and so that's very very important. There's no need to paralyze these patients. Remember, remember they're going to progress to an acidotic state, so we want to leave them the ability to overbreathe the vent. So keeping them on SIMV, I would probably go pressure control ventilation because, again, that's going to be protective lung strategy. It's going to be more gentle. Um, and then just continue with monitoring your patients, monitoring your advanced hemodynamics, looking at that pulmonary artery waveform and, and making sure that we have um, good, consistent waveform throughout. So this patient uh, was transported, did very well, uh, stayed on the ventilator for a few days, stayed in the ICU for about a week and a half and made a full recovery. And um, this was a bilateral uh, viral pneumonia that actually progressed into ARDS, and uh, the patient uh, did really well. And so uh, that's all I have for this presentation. If you have any questions regarding advanced hemodynamics, if you want me to do a different podcast that focuses strictly maybe on a cardiac presentation, uh, just please email me. Remember, it's eric at flightbridgehead.com, and I'd be happy to do a podcast uh, regarding the cardiac problem um, associated with, with you know, all these different parameters. Um, we want to thank everybody again for following us. We, we we're just feel so blessed with, with all the support, with all the emails we get. I believe our listener downloads for the first um, um, year and a half, we've, we've hit over 50,000 downloads. So that's, that's a big testament of you guys. Uh, thank you so much. We know that we're nothing without you. Um, our books are doing really well. If you, if you haven't, uh, uh, looked at one of our books, you can actually go online to our website, www.flightbridgehead.com, and you can check it out. Go to the online store. You can buy them in a package deal where you get both books, the book that we actually give in the review class that's kind of set in outline format. There's a lot of pictures. There's charts. There's questions. And then we have the fast exam prep book that's been getting rave reviews, and, and we've been doing real well with that. And, and, again, I get a lot of emails, and I just want to thank everybody for the encouragement. And, you know, we're going to continue to try to put out good products, um, and we, we really do listen to your feedback. So uh, on behalf of all of us at Flatbridge Ed, we want to thank you, and we'll talk to you soon.
want to thank you for following Flatbridge Ed.